Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin. Today, prepare to define your approach to chronic diseases as we rebroadcast a very recent AMA with Elaine Scarpelli from her fascinating podcast. We discuss the powerful influence of lifestyle choices over medications in managing diseases like obesity and diabetes. We navigate the murky waters of the healthcare system, examining the tug of war between drug profitability on one hand and the true benefits to health. We uncover the surprising efficacy of diet in not just managing, but potentially even reversing type 2 diabetes. And brace yourself for a candid discussion on dietary fats and the contentious opinions of the cholesterol wars and statins. We conclude our discussion as we delve into the myths and revelations of sugar consumption and intermittent fasting. Hear firsthand accounts of the transformative effects of fasting, including increased energy and mental clarity. We challenge entrenched beliefs around meal timing and stress the importance of honoring our body's natural hunger signals. Tune in for an episode that not only educates, but also empowers you to take control of your health with informed decisions. This week's episode is brought to you by El Nutra, maker of the prolonged fasting mimicking diet. I just started using their five-day fasting plan, and it's really pretty wild. If you want to try it, use the link in the show notes for 20% off. Please support this podcast by checking out their website and taking a look at their other innovative products. And now, please enjoy this week's episode. Well, welcome to another edition of Fuel Life Focus. We hope uh, everyone is enjoying the summit so far. Uh, today we have uh, Dr. Robert Lufkin, um, medical doctor MD and author of Lies I Taught in Medical School, very provocative title of your book. So, And you generously allowed me to address you as Rob. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, and thank you. Yeah, thanks, Elaine. I'm so excited to be on your program. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fan, and it's great to be here in person. We appreciate that very much. Um, just really, really quick before I get started, if you want to give us a little, really, the Cliff Notes version of your bio, um, you know how you how you got here. Yeah, I'm basically a uh, I'm a physician. My specialty is radiology or medical imaging. I've spent my whole career in um, in uh, in medical schools, uh, basically at UCLA or at USC, uh, where where I'm a professor at both of them at various times. And um, that experience was was really foundational for me because it allowed me in in that role. I got to practice medicine and actually treat patients and hopefully help them uh, also do research. And, um, you know, in a, in a very narrow area that I was working in, at least I was able to set up a laboratory and write, you know, hundreds of peer reviewed papers and get grants and, you know, do the usual medical establishment type things there. And then finally, uh, and perhaps most satisfying, I was able to work with students and doctors in training, you know, as the one of the goals of the medical school is to help teach people and also learning from them uh, as as well. But I was able to do all three of those things. And um, uh, then about uh, 
Gosh, about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with four medical conditions that were completely sort of unexpected. And I went to my doctors and I was prescribed medications for them to take care of them. But it was, they were, there were conditions that my father had died of, but he was in almost 90 years old, but I was, I still had kids in elementary school. And I said, you know, wow, this isn't going to end well. So um, kind of out of self-interest, I began like reading about these things. And I realized there's, there's been a tremendous revolution in information recently about diseases and our understanding of these things. And so basically, long story short, I, I began implementing some of the new um, suggestions and changes in my lifestyle and other things. And long story short, I went back to see the doctors and they said, I can't believe it. What's going on? You know, and I, I was uh, off medic medications for all these diseases and I no longer have them. Uh, and that has um, changed my focus now to health and longevity. And I'm trying to share this information with other people so that they don't, they don't go down the same path I did. And that that's the basis of this book and, and all. Thank you. Yeah, and that uh, really is a lot of what this what this uh, health and wellness summit is is all about is getting people educated um, and making sure that they're getting the right resources before they make decisions before they take medications or treatments that may or may not be right for them. Um, so first off, what are some of the most common misconceptions about the causes of chronic diseases? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... The these misconceptions are something that I had as as well, and that is that um, uh, simple things that are still being taught today that uh, we get fat because we um, we eat too much and don't exercise enough, and that that's the basis for the rec recommendation that's still given today is if you have a problem with obesity, exercise more and eat less. Now. That doesn't really work, as we all know, because exercise uh, creates an appetite and um, it's not as, as simple as eating less. There, there are other factors such as the type of macronutrients we eat that are much more important, but that's not emphasized to people. Um, other misconceptions about the origins of chronic diseases are that, um, uh, well, Alzheimer's disease, the, the idea is, is that it's beta amyloid plaques in the brain, these kind of plaques that research has been directed at over decades with essentially unlimited funds, with the results that there are no medications, effective pharmaco pharmaceutical medications for Alzheimer's disease. So I, I think that the, that chronic disease, Alzheimer's, the the basis for it is a misconception that that it's caused by beta amyloid plaques and as i go in detail in the book there are many other causes that are effective treatments for alzheimer's disease that can either slow it or reverse it or prevent it from happening but you can go down the list with uh chronic diseases like cancer same same thing there chronic diseases like heart disease and stroke which is the number one killer that all of us statistically are most likely to die of um other things like diabetes uh as well there there are misconceptions about all of those and the kind of the aha moment for me that was um an epiphany 
that uh, from my understanding that I wasn't aware of, and many of my colleagues are still not aware of, is that all these chronic diseases that I just mentioned, which are, it's important to remember, these chronic diseases are the diseases that determine our longevity. In other words, statistically, uh, most of us, all of us, everyone we know are going to die of likely five or six diseases, you know, probably most likely. And those diseases are these chronic diseases that I just mentioned. And the fascinating thing is that at a basic level, they're all linked to common factors, things like inflammation, things like insulin resistance and, and other factors in our body. And the point is that modern medicine treats these chronic diseases with prescriptions and, and various therapies, but in many cases, they're only treating the symptoms of these chronic diseases and they're overlooking the basic cause, which are the metabolic factors that drive inflammation and drive insulin resistance. And the problem is if you don't correct those basic metabolic factors, um, you, you can take the treatment for the chronic disease, like a stent for a, for a heart attack. You put a stent in the coronary artery that opens up the artery. It's a little tube and everyone that's the, that's the accepted treatment for a heart attack is to put a stent in to open up the vessel. And that helps the vessel acutely. The problem is it doesn't do anything to the underlying cause. In other words, the stent will eventually clock clog down again and narrow and the other blood vessels will narrow as well and the stent itself just treats the symptom of the disease and doesn't do anything with the underlying factors so the key thing is the epiphany was that these common factors that underlying all these chronic diseases can be addressed with lifestyle changes that we get to choose every day. Choices about nutrition, sleep, exercise, and, and stress. And that's what can significantly affect these, these chronic diseases. And what would you say are the biggest challenges to get people to commit to these lifestyle changes um, that can help reverse chronic diseases? Well, Probably, arguably, one of the most important factors in lifestyle is nutrition, right? And we we live in a world full of junk food. And um, I should know I'm a recovering junk food addict. Um, I struggle with it all the time. Um, and when I first began doing this work, I thought it's just a matter of educating people, you know, that, you know, if you're a type two diabetic and you eat this sugar donut, you'll make your diabetes worse and you'll eventually get your foot chopped off. You'll go blind. Your kidneys will fail and you're in dialysis and diabetes is the number one cause of all those, those things I just mentioned. Uh, and if you just explain it to someone with, with evidence-based research where you know you, you've got the evidence to show that you're not just making it up if you present that to to people then they will they will change their life but it it in my experience is not that simple it's because we're complex we have addictions we have habits um even our lifestyle choices we make are driven by many many factors in in our 
you know, childhood trauma and, you know, our experiences in life and our mental health. And uh, it's not just a, a matter of saying, you know, sugar's bad for you or seed oils are bad for you. Don't eat it. We all fall back into that pattern. So sometimes to make these changes, it's necessary to have coaches and um, work on a, a plan over time, just like any addiction that you deal with. You know, it's, you know, people who smoke cigarettes know that they're at risk for heart attack and lung cancer that, you, you know, nobody doesn't know that today, but they still, they still do it. So the big thing was the challenge about actually getting people to to make these changes. It's not enough just to educate them and and make them aware of it, but sometimes it takes a lot more. Sure. No, I, and, and I think also the fact that there was so much misinformation over the years. Like I remember when I you know was much younger, it was low fat, low fat, low fat. And no one told me that I had to watch my sugar intake. And then it became the whole, oh, let's just you know cut out all the carbs, all of them, every single one of them. And, and then I think over time, you know, we're getting different, different bits and pieces of information. Um, and I think right now, like for me personally, right now, I'm focusing my workouts more on building muscle. Whereas before I was just running on that treadmill thinking that, you know, I was going to run myself into good health and, you know, now realizing that there's, there's some better ways. So I think it's a matter of really getting all the information, finding out what's best for you, you know, because I mean, I think exercise is a little bit individual, but um, yeah, my, I mean, my next question would be then what role do you think the medical and or the pharmaceutical industries have played in some of this misconception? Um, a big role, a big role. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm not saying it was necessarily intentional, although there are examples of, of you know, misconduct, uh, where people knowingly, uh, drove things with financial incentives, a certain direction, but a lot of it was just, uh, you know, people tried to under, I mean, uh, hopefully people tried to understand things as best they could and make the best decisions at the time. The problem was, you know, as you pointed out, there were national public policy decisions made about the type of nutrition to have, specifically the low-fat diet in the food pyramid, which has driven uh, people to a high-carb diet, which is very, you know, very toxic for many people, driving diabetes and inflammation and all these and heart disease as well. So, um, I, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is, uh, you know, very, very much to blame, and the health, the healthcare industry is is to blame as well. The pharmaceutical industry um, has, you know, has has a profit motive for certain drugs, and um, you know they have an obligation to their shareholders to make money. And if you have two drugs that one is more profitable but slightly less healthy, and the other is less profitable but slightly more healthy, which one do you think? Which one do you think they will take? Um, so it's it's complicated. You know, our system is designed for our our healthcare system is designed for the de delivery of pills and surgery largely, and our visits are very short so that a pill can be given. People would rather take a pill 
then go out and exercise or change their diet. Um, you know, they'd rather take Ozempic than do other things to lo lose weight, which Ozempic is one of the new uh, weight loss drugs that's very expensive. It's very effective, but it has some downstream side effects that we're just beginning to, to appreciate. But um, so it, it's, it's complex, uh, but all of those, all of those, uh, institutions are implicated in this, I think. Sure. No, I, absolutely. Um, what would you say some of the most promising new approaches to either reversing chronic diseases or really most importantly, preventing them altogether? Um, what are, you know, I mean, some things that, that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we've undergone a revolution in our understanding of the drivers of these chronic diseases, um, and I think now for the first time we can there's there's overwhelming evidence that these things are effective that we can do every day in our lives, and these things are going to be more effective than um, you know taking an Alzheimer's drug, you know, which doesn't work or you know, some of the other drugs for for the uh, for the diabetes. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying stop taking your drugs and just, you know, do lifestyle things. Drugs have a role in saving lives and the acute management of, of these diseases. If I if I'm a type two diabetic and I'm taking insulin and metformin I'm not saying stop those things and just cut your carbs. That has to be managed very carefully. But there's very strong evidence from studies from companies like Verta and other companies that have shown um, pretty much compellingly that type 2 diabetes can be reversed with dietary restrictions, with a low-carb diet. You know, people talk about the carnivore diet, which is sort of the extreme the opposite extreme from the vegan diet where you vegan diets you only eat plants a carnivore diet you only eat meat but the thing with meat there's no um there's really no carbohydrates in the meat and carbohydrates are the drivers for uh type 2 diabetes so people who go on a carnivore diet essentially reverse their type 2 diabetes it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing when that happens yeah, that is amazing. I'm I'm reading a lot uh, lately, especially online about the carnivore diet. Um, so you know, it, it really is interesting, and it you know, kind of you know, uh, goes against a lot of what we were taught about. I remember years ago. Remember, it was no eggs because eggs had yeah. cholesterol, and that was bad for your heart. So I mean, and now it's really more on. I'm reading more about the types of oils, like you had mentioned, seed oils being bad for us. I believe vegetable oils, seed oils. Um, I think most, or not most, or some pure forms of olive oil, coconut oils, would those be oils you recommend if you had, you know, if you had to recommend what we cook with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're going to get rid of uh, canola oil and vegetable oil, we need to be able to replace it with something effective and so, or something, you know, equally good, but it, that it's healthy. So uh, the, the oils that I use to replace the seed oils with are things like uh, olive oil, coconut oil, um, and, and uh, these, these kinds of things as well. So you, there are substitutes for them that don't have the high amounts of linoleic acid. The seed oils are, first of all, they're industrial oils. They were 
originally developed as lubricants for German submarines in World War One. That was the Crisco oil. Um, but then they found out that people could eat these. But there, there's a lot of evidence and growing evidence that they're very pro-inflammatory. And the inflammation is, you know, as we said, one of the main drivers of chronic disease. So uh, even though the American Heart Association on their website recommends canola oil as a heart healthy oil, I, I disagree. I don't think the evidence is there. And part of it is um, uh, that institution is funded or receives funding from the uh, vegetable oil manufacturers. So it's, it's complicated, but personally I avoid vegetable oils. Uh, I substitute, you know, avocado oil, coconut oil, or um, um, uh, olive oil, for those. Um, I also avoid, um, uh, I, I avoid uh, carbohydrates to a large extent, uh, especially refined carbohydrates in, in, in my diet. Uh, I, and I also avoid grains, um, not just gluten, but any kind of grains, including whole grains. Uh, there's a number of issues there. So even what about how do you feel about oatmeal? Or does it depend on what kind of oats it is? Everybody's different, but um, for many people or most people, oatmeal will spike your glucose after an oatmeal meal. And that sort of spiking is something that we want to avoid um, to avoid damage to our blood vessels. And the HA1C marker is a, that's a diagnostic test for diabetes is actually a measure of glucose damage to red blood cells. So Oatmeal is something I would I would avoid. And I, I know you have made it clear that you are not telling anyone to get off medication, um, at least not completely, um, that you know these are just ways to help improve your life, help to avoid getting these chronic diseases. Um, what would you tell someone, however, that is uh, was diagnosed with high cholesterol? And how do you feel about statins, the uh, yeah, it's good, good, good question. Statins are, uh, you know, a very controversial hot button issue today. Um, um, we, you, but uh, let me unpack what you said a little bit. If someone's diagnosed with high cholesterol, that's assuming that high cholesterol is a disease or something to be diagnosed with. There's some evidence that um, elevated cholesterol, I mean, the 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 message is that high cholesterol somehow contributes to heart disease and that's that goes back to your eggs you know from 50 years ago and the uh urging to eat a low fat diet avoid cholesterol avoid egg yolks that kind of thing so um the question is does elevated cholesterol does that drive heart attacks and um there's growing evidence that shows that the effect may be much, much less than we thought. Certainly, there's no question now. Everybody pretty much agrees that dietary cholesterol, in other words, what we consume in our diet from, from eggs and things, doesn't have an effect, really a significant effect on our blood cholesterol. So what we're talking about, high cholesterol is high blood cholesterol. And you, you don't have to worry about your diet for the cholesterol there. But in the blood cholesterol, things like LDL cholesterol is one of the markers uh, that's that's elevated in, in heart disease. And the question is, is this causing heart disease? Well, there's 
famous studies to refute it that, you know, half the patients who come in with an acute heart attack have normal cholesterol. You know, they don't have elevated cholesterol. If you look at the risk factors, though, elevated cholesterol, you know, is a risk factor for heart disease, you know, um, for a, a hazard ratio for heart, heart disease and heart attack. But it's very, it's relatively small when you compare it to things like smoking or metabolic disease driven by carbohydrates and sugars or type two diabetes, certainly. So then the question, then the question, be, go ahead. No, I'll finish. No. Then the question becomes the statins are drugs, as we know, that lower our blood cholesterol. They lower the lipids in our blood cholesterol. Well, the question is, are statins associated with improvement, decreased risk of heart attacks? Well, actually they are. So then why not take them? Well, you have to examine the risk-benefit ratio. The benefits from statins are um, usually exaggerated in the advertisements by showing a, a relative risk versus an absolute risk. The absolute risk is about 1%, which is which is actually very small uh, risk improvement in in heart you know, in heart attacks, that's one out of 100. But heart attacks are the number one killer. So why wouldn't I take a statin, right? Well, there are actually problems with statins too, as far as side effects. A lot of people have muscle problems, people have memory problems with statins. So uh, there, you know, some people that just don't want to take statins because of the side effects. So in general, um, you know, you have to make the decision with your doctor and, but I would, you know, I would urge people to look uh, very closely at them. If you have a zero calcium score and no family history of heart disease, um, even the American Heart Association recommends, or the Amer American Cardiology Association recommends canceling or discontinuing statins. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you're on statins, and you don't want to be them, get a coronary calcium score. It costs about $100, and it looks for coronary, calcium in your coronary arteries, and uh, and then you can uh, uh, you can stop the statins. Your doctor will will agree with that. Great. No, I never heard of that, but that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm just curious as to how you feel about, um, I mean, we know we talked about cholesterol and how, you know, there's you know, some disagreement, so to say on, is that really the cause of a heart attack? Um, what about something like high blood pressure and the effect of high blood pressure on heart attack? And what can people do to get their blood pressure under control? Yeah, high blood pressure is, or hypertension as it's called, is a huge health issue. You know, up to half of adults or 40% of adults have hypertension. And the majority of them are called essential hypertension because we really don't know what it is. You know, it used to be, oh, it's salt in your diet and don't do that. But a number of things drive hypertension that things like uh, smoking and um, other types of things we're just beginning to understand. But the amazing thing is with hypertension, like the other chronic diseases, there's an interesting phenomenon when you change your lifestyle and change your diet and and stress the blood pressure actually goes down so um if you go to your doctor you'll be given medicines uh prescriptions for high blood pressure and you certainly should take those at, at first any any prescription drug you should either start or discontinue only 
with the supervision of a physician. But it's been my experience that many, many people can stop their prescription medicines with a physician's help for hypertension by changing their lifestyle. And obviously that can mean losing weight. That works for a lot of people, but even changing their diet, going to a low carb ketogenic diet, doing some intermittent fasting, these can have dramatic effects on, on blood pressure. Things that we didn't know were associated with blood pressure before or until a few years ago, nitric oxide, which is made in the mouth, um, uh, actually relaxes the blood vessels. That's the basis for Viagra or Cialis, you know, for men with erectile dysfunction. But that works with all the blood vessels in the body. But that that nitric oxide is made in the mouth. So when people take antibacterial mouthwashes, they kill all the bacteria in the mouth or they they alter the bacteria in the mouth that create the nitric oxide. So there's actually good evidence in studies that show that people who use mouthwash actually have higher blood pressure than people who don't. For that reason, I stopped using uh, using uh, mouthwash uh, for that and number number of other reasons. But things like fructose, fructose is can is is a component of sugar. It's half of you know it's half of table sugar is glucose and fructose. Fructose, uh, when it goes into the body, is converted to something called urate or uric acid, which causes gout. And that's converted into uh, something that it interferes with um, nitric oxide in the blood vessels. So fructose can actually contribute to hypertension through this mechanism. So there's so many dietary factors and lifestyle factors that are driving hypertension that we really weren't aware of until very recently. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very interesting. And, and actually I, I did bring up high blood pressure because um, it is personal for me. Um, about 22 years ago, my father passed away of a massive heart attack at 63. He had high blood pressure and he was supposed to be on medication. And he decided that he didn't like the side effects and that he didn't need it. Now, it would have been nice if he changed some lifestyle, uh, his diet or reduced his stress or some of those other things. But, you know, he thought he knew everything and, and didn't need to do any of those things. And unfortunately, you know, the rest is history. Now, on top, some years later, um, my children's other grandfather passed away of a heart attack suddenly at 62. So now I have my children with a heart history on both sides. You know, one grandfather at 63, one at 62. And I feel like, you know, they can't mess around. They really have to be watching their heart. I mean, they're they're 16 and 18 right now, but you're never too young to start a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, I want to make sure that I'm giving them every all the tools that they need ahead of time. Um, you know, so I don't know if you had any suggestions as far as you mentioned intermittent fasting and, um, you know, you know, what you think of a little, maybe elaborate a little more on the benefits of that, um, or really anything else that any type of advice that you would give for someone that has that history. Yeah, well, um, I can certainly relate to it. I've got a 12 year old and a 14 year old daughters. And so I'm, you know, they go to the school and the school serves them, you know, orange juice and, you know, which is like a candy bar and, uh, basically sugar cereals and then chocolate milk and all these sugar laden things in their diet and they're constantly exposed to sugar. Uh, but 
the dietary things that we we talk about, like intermittent fasting, is very very powerful. I would just say that um, anything I'm recommending is pretty much for adults, and uh, with children, we really don't know what what's going on. Is some of the more extreme stuff like fasting for kids. It's you know you just need to um, need to be careful of it and coordinate it with your with your pediatrician. Certainly, avoiding sugar with your kids is okay because sugar is, you know, the micronutrients, fat, protein, and carbohydrates, carbohydrates of which sugar is a type is the only macronutrient that's non-essential. In other words, you can, you can be perfectly healthy without eating any carbohydrates or any sugar. So kids can avoid that. But the other stuff, um, fasting is a very, very powerful tool in my experience. And if you, if you don't want to change your diet, you say, Hey, I like, you know, I like my orange juice. I like my oatmeal or whatever. Um, but I want to be healthy. Is there anything else I can do? And actually, yeah, there is. It's just, and the answer to that is stop eating all the time. You know, in our modern times, we get up in the morning, we have breakfast, and then we have a snack the midday, and then we have lunch, and then we have another snack, and then we have dinner, and then we have another snack. And, you know, you know, the drill, or certainly that was my life, at least. Uh, but um, uh, there are a number of reasons in our biology that it's beneficial to just not eat and not have food in our gut. And it, and it one of the mechanisms is, is a protein called mTOR, it turns mTOR into a favorable state that promotes things like autophagy and healing of our bodies and, and prevents uh, accelerated growth that, you know, can drive cancers or heart disease or Alzheimer's disease, all these other things. So, you know, intermittent fasting, even in a day, just, just start with cutting out snacks, you know, just eat once in a while. I've, I've gone to the point where I started that way and then I, I dropped breakfast and then I dropped lunch. And now I basically just eat one meal a day when my kids home, come home from school and I have a, a great meal. I can eat as much as I want because it's only one meal a day. You know, it's like you don't have to count calories or anything like that. But it's um, it's very it's very powerful. And by fasting the rest of the day, I, for me and for many people, I find I have more energy, less brain fog and when you fast, your body goes into a state called ketosis, uh, where you're burning ketones instead of glucose or sugars. And when you're burning ketones, it naturally suppresses your appetite. So people say like, oh, how can you go all day without eating? You know, you get up in the morning, you exercise, and you haven't eaten since, you know, six o'clock the night before, you know, how does that work? Well, it, it works great, you know, and, 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 it it it's um for me i think it's a it's a healthier way of being and i've been doing it for a few years now yeah i'm i'm reading a lot of really great things about about uh, intermittent fasting um you know done done the right way uh you know it's funny cuz years ago i mean when i was a kid i was told uh don't leave the house until you eat breakfast whether you're hungry or not go go eat breakfast and i think now it's so important to realize like listen to your body if you're not hungry then you don't need to be eating right now and yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say I, you know, I try now um try not to eat until at least noon, you know, have something at lunchtime, um, you know, drinking lots of water. And and I am finding myself, you know, a lot more alert, less brain fog, 
you know, whereas I think there was some misconception before and we were told, oh, you must have an eating disorder if you skipped one meal. And that's not the case, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the whenever, when I first started skipping breakfast, a little message would play in my head. It said, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And my mom was a dietitian, and she used to tell us that too. And then as reading a little bit about it, it turns out that's actually not medical advice or even healthy advice. It's a sales pitch from um, uh, one of the creators of the very, one of the very first junk foods was uh, created by a guy named John Kellogg, who worked with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they were making cereals as an alternative for meat at breakfast because they felt meat was bad at it it um, created carnal desires in people and the cereal would help suppress this sort of thing. Uh, so Kellogg's Corn Flakes was marketed with the slogan that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And it's worked, you know, <laughs> Kellogg still sells a lot of cereal. And and that that message is in in all our heads playing all the time. Yep. No, we definitely have to. um unteach ourselves some of some of the uh, false information that we grew up on. I mean, I, and you mentioned orange juice and yeah, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, that was the first thing I had was that cup of sugar, uh, yeah. orange juice. And, you know, we thought it was okay because there was no added sugar to it, but you know, sometimes that, that doesn't matter. Yeah. It could be, it could be just as bad. I haven't, I don't think I've bought orange juice in about two decades. Um, so <laughs> I, I successfully cut that habit and my kids were never really, um, they didn't really grow up with orange juice. And even when they were little, I used to water down their juice um, mm -hmm. just to try to cut out their sugar. And now now with my son, um, I have another reason to cut out his sugar because he has cavities. Um, he's got, every time we go to the dentist, we have, we have another issue. So it's, you know, it's not just for his gut health and his blood health and all of those other things, but, you know, for his teeth as well. So I've got Plenty of reasons to uh, to make sure I educate my kids with with uh, all the best all the best knowledge, all the best tools to give them to make some better decisions as they enter adulthood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's definitely what what I'm trying to do. But um, but I think uh, we got a lot of really great information in in this talk, and I think that everybody watching is um, learned a lot and would probably uh. Um, like I know I am uh, wanting more. So I know that you've offered a um, uh, a free excerpt of your book. So if you want, um, we'll have a link to that in our in our website as well. And um, yeah, if you want to tell them a little bit more about about your book, and um, and I'm sure they can get the whole thing if they want to purchase that as well. Sure. Which I Great read. Yeah, the book. This is a preprint. It's uh, "Lies I Taught in Medical School," a very provocative, clickbait title, I admit. But uh, anyway, it, it just goes through, and uh, for each of fifteen chapters, there's a lie that uh, that we talk about, and it covers basically a lot of the stuff we talked about uh, today. But it's coming out in the spring. Um, uh, but if you if you're interested in it and want would like to read a free sample chapter, we have the first chapter online at my website. You're welcome to download it and uh, take a look at it and see what you think. And I recommend that everybody do that because uh, I got a chance to preview it and um, very interesting and definitely I was wanting more. So 
I hope everybody uh, goes to your website. We'll have the link provided. And I'm sure everybody uh, was very happy to hear everything that you had to say for us today. So thank you so much, Rob. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day and your schedule uh, to come join our summit. So thank you very much. And um, yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the program, Elaine. And uh, I can't wait to hear the, the other speakers on this program. If you are enjoying this program, please hit that subscribe button or even better, leave a review. Your support makes it possible for us to create the quality programming that we're continually striving for. Also, let us know if there is a certain topic that you would like to see covered or a particular guest that you would like to hear from. Can I start? Is it recording? It's already recording. Oh, sorry. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of healthcare diagnosis or treatment or the creation of a physician, patient, or a clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value, please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel. And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously, so please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next time. You should say that. That's good. You like it? You want to do it one more time, or is that good? I think that was good. Yes. Okay. You need to save the recording. Very good.